following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Don't you wonder, seriously, don't you wonder what they'll say? What are they going to say when millions suddenly disappear all over the earth? There was a large, loud atmospheric disturbance, and then millions of people are gone. Traffic jams, plane crashes, international disasters. Obviously, police and fire and rescue crews will be overtaxed. And obviously, governments will issue states of emergency. And uh, as Christian homes and businesses will be targeted for looting, all that good stuff that you've got that you left behind, what are they going to say? I guarantee I got two responses. I know what they're going to say. I absolutely know. Number one, Dr. Humanistic from Berkeley will dogmatically declare that UFOs took millions of people for research, slavery, and of course, food supply. We saw it. The aliens yanked the millions into the upper atmosphere where the ships carried them away. That's number one. Secondly, the Pope, the Grand uh, Mufti of Islam, and several prominent t- Christian TV personalities will all agree. All those who disappeared were taken away in judgment. Judgment. Those unloving, those fundamentalist, Bible-believing, legalistic believed that Christ was the only way of salvation, were finally punished for those beliefs. And they will misquote Matthew 25, 31 and declare that those narrow, hard-hearted, fundamentalist, extreme legalistic goats were snatched away, and now we broad-minded sheep can live in peace and kind of establish God's kingdom on earth. I believe the two main theories will be that. Christians disappeared because of aliens, and or God judged them. And that's my best guess. But regardless of what they say, it's going to be so traumatic because not only will that basically be shocking the entire world, but it also introduces the Great Tribulation. Seven years of God's outpouring of His wrath. And there will be, as we begin that period of time, no Christians on earth. The rapture will leave the world without believers, except maybe for two prophets who will then be leading about 144,000 Jewish evangelists who will then evangelize the world and have an incredible ministry. But how will the world respond when all the Christians disappear? Well, if our day is any indication, if our day has taught us anything, if our day has given us an idea what might happen, they will not tell the truth. Can I hear an amen to that? But I do, this morning, long to proclaim the truth about God's word concerning the rapture. That's what happens next for Christians. We're about to begin, starting today, an eight-week series about what is to come. And we're going to be talking about the rapture and the tribulation and the second coming of Christ and the judgments and death and heaven and hell and amazing, the kingdom itself. And what happens next for Christians, though, is the rapture. That's what we're looking for, and there are three truths I want to highlight about our snatching away, and one would be the rapture is a fact, the second, the rapture is first, and third, the rapture is final. The chart in your outline lets you know where the rapture fits in God's plan, 
And the Bible affirms, number one in your outline, that the rapture is a fact. It's a fact. Is the rapture close? Is it soon? Or, well, I believe it is. And you need to be ready. You really do. This is not cartoon. This is fact. This is reality. The rapture of the church is sudden. It is unannounced. We won't see it coming. But there are a few things that have to be in place in order for the tribulation to occur, which, of course, the rapture begins the tribulation, and so it requires certain events to be on the scene. What are some of those things that need to be on the scene for this all to start taking a place in the day of the Lord to kind of tick away? Well, one is Israel needs to be back in the land of Israel. Check. Since 1948, the temple must be ready to build. If you've known anything about the news, they have it all prepared and ready to go. The world must be at its lowest moral and spiritual condition. Eh, it's bad. It can get worse. Russia must be hostile to Israel. Hmm. Europe must be loosely cooperating with each other. And the world must be linked by one great economy. Do you think we're close to the rapture? Those things are in place. The word rapture, though, doesn't occur in the New Testament. In fact, the word comes from a Latin word, repair, repair. Uh, it comes directly, though, that word from the Greek word harpazo. And harpazo means to be caught up, to be seized. And thus the rapture is the return of Jesus Christ to seize all believers in the church. Uh, to catch us up into the air. Christians who are dead will be resurrected, and then those who are alive will be caught up, snatched up, to meet the Lord in the air, to be with Him forever. We can hardly wait for that moment, but is it true? Is it factual? Well, if you believe the Bible, then your answer is yes. And I want to show you from the Bible, so turn to three passages with me. And you've got to have your Bible, because this is Faith Bible Church. So turn, if you would, to John 14, verses 1 through 3. John 14, 1 through 3. Now in John 13, the chapter before, Jesus has just taken his disciples to the upper room. And being in the upper room, he has jolted them with some very shocking news to prepare them for his departure. What he tells them first is that one of them is going to betray him, and that shocks everyone. And then secondly, he tells them that he's going away. He's going to go away, and this troubles the disciples. And so chapter 14, verse 1 starts with these words. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart be, what? Troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, Jesus promises, I prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will what? Receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Looking forward to that? The disciples are about to lose the one who they sacrificed everything for. Uh, they're about to lose the one whom the, has the words of eternal life. They're about to basically lose the one who's been their guide and their source for everything that matters. The one they love more than life itself. So how does Jesus then comfort them? Well, first, he gives them a call to faith. Look what he says, believe in God. He says, hang in there. God has always come through, and I'm going to come through. 
And then he, with a promise, he calls them to faith in his program. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He's not talking about manufacturing a brand new place. Christ literally is readying up, he's equipping, he's furnishing up some dwellings for you. Not just the disciples, but for you. He's equipping, he's furnishing up, he's readying up a place for you. Now, what does that mean? To understand this, you've got to understand the oriental dwelling. The typical oriental dwelling was basically a square and a major house at the back of the square, but basically the wall faces outward. There's only one entrance into this square, and that's where Jesus calls himself the singular entrance. He's the gate. He's the one where you get into this particular dwelling. And what would happen is that as the family grew, they would section off different sections within this square with a patio in the middle, and they would section off another couple rooms. And so basically, if uh, you know, the, the son wanted to marry a gal and they wanted to live with the parents, then they would just basically square off a couple more rooms. And so they'd keep building within this internal square. And that's the imagery that Jesus is giving here. And why that's important is because he's telling them, not that I'm preparing you a mansion so you can live, you know, up on the plateau or down in Temecula or something like that. I'm preparing a place for you so that we can be together. The whole point is I'm sectioning on off another section of this oriental dwelling. So we're all going to be together in together unity and together oneness. And that's to comfort their heart. They're going, oh, we're going to all live together in the future. That's what Jesus is saying. We're all going to be dwelling together in the same place. And the thought then is not mansions. This is not about the angel construction company. This is about unity and togetherness ministering to these men who are about to lose the one they love more than life. And so the disciples would be comforted that they again would live with Christ in the same dwelling, united with one another, united with the Father. He's readying up your room. Now this points to something that's really important. The great attraction of eternity is not heaven, it's Christ. It's being with our Savior and our Lord. That's the attraction. And that's what's most important to these men. Is not, oh, do I get a nice place in heaven? Is I get to be with you, Lord. I get to dwell with you now for eternity, which is awesome. And so just as the bridegroom desires to keep his bride with him, Wherever they may be, the Lord Jesus, because of his love for us, who is the church, who is his bride, desires to be with us and us desiring to be with him. He loves you. He died for you. He chose you. Why did he choose you? I don't know why he chose you. I can't figure, I can't why figure out why he chose me. Anybody with me on that? But he did. And he loves you and he wants to be with you forever. And so... Did you notice that it's not the angels who are coming from us, but it is the Lord himself? Look what Jesus says in verse 3. He says, I will come again. And he uses the present tense there, which is significant. It's as if his coming is such a reality, it's already happened. It's the Lord's way of saying, guys, this is as good as done. This is as good as done. So now he's preparing a dwelling place as a groom does for his bride so that we might be at home with him forever. We get to be with him forever. Dwell with him in the same dwelling forever. So is this the rapture? Well, if it were the second coming, it would describe us returning to the earth with Christ and reigning with him in the kingdom. 
it would be in the context of the end of the seven-year tribulation. But this passage talks about us going away to be with the Lord. You see it there? To his dwelling place. So yes, this is a rapture. Now to prove it, I want you to turn to another passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Please, in your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 15, 51. 15, 51. Now this is the chapter that teaches about the resurrection from the dead. And Paul gives us some insight into our hope, the church's hope, the Christian's hope, found in this particular passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 51. It says this, Behold, I tell you a what? A mystery. Now, mystery is not used here the way it's used today. Uh, when a writer used mystery in the New Testament, he's referring to something that was hidden in the Old Testament and now is revealed in the New Testament. So verse 51 is telling us something that wasn't previously disclosed in the Old Testament. In other words, it wasn't talked about in the Old Testament. This is new information, new revelation from God. What is this mystery? Well, is it the resurrection? This is the resurrection chapter. Is it the resurrection? Well, no, because the Bible tells us in Daniel chapter 12 and in Job chapter 19 that there is a bodily resurrection. It is revealed in the Old Testament, so that can't be the mystery that's now new in the New Testament, all right? So what is not known in the Old Testament? Well, look at verse 51 again. Take a look at it. We will not all what? Sleep, but we will all be changed. The mystery is that some believers will be translated up to heaven without dying. The rapture. Some believers will be translated up to heaven without dying. That's the mystery that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. All believers will be changed and get a transformed, glorified body, but not all believers will die, and that was a mystery that is now revealed. All right? How will it happen? Well, look at verse 52 of 1 Corinthians 15. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be first, will be raised imperishable, glorified body, and we, the living, will be what? Will be changed. Now, how fast will the rapture be? How fast will the rapture, how will it take for you to be changed? How fast is the twinkling of an eye? Okay? It's not a blink. There is an actual specific word in the Greek language for blink. So he didn't use that here. So he's not talking about a blink. But basically, the time it takes for the beam of light to travel from the surface of your eye to the retina it's a twinkle when your eye sparkles. That's a twinkle, not a twinkie, a twinkle. Now, it takes light. Are you ready to measure this? It takes light. If I was to you know, somehow have a super beam laser and I flashed it at the moon, it would take that light 1.5 seconds to get to the moon. That's the speed of light towards the moon. And can you imagine how fast you will disappear when it comes to the twinkling of an eye? Now, one science buff figured it out. You, know, you always got those science geeks, and there's a few here. You probably would figure this out as well. The exact length of time for a twinkle is one-sixth of a nanosecond. Write it down. One-sixth of a nanosecond. Now, a microsecond is one millionth of a second. A nanosecond is one thousandth of one millionth of a second. And a twinkling of an eye, the rapture, is one-sixth of a nanosecond. Now, it can't be the second coming that he's talking about here because in the second coming, the Bible tells us every eye will see him. So therefore, 
this is unique. Now, what kind of body are we going to get? Well, read verse 53. He says, For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Verse 51 says we will be changed. Well, what will we be changed into? What kind of body are we going to get? We talked a little bit about this at Easter. Well, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, and 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, tell us that our glorified bodies will be like Jesus Christ's glorified body. When he was resurrected from the dead, he was the model of what our body will be like. Well, what was Christ's glorified body like? Well, listen, he came and he will come in the same body that he left 2,000 years ago. So it's a very durable body. Would you agree? It's going to endure, you know? It's not going to fall apart, as many of you are used to. He could appear and disappear, and he could go through walls. He could eat honeycomb, and then he could also show the disciples the wounds in his hands and feet. He could speak and be understood. He could stand on a mountain and just take off into space. Now, that's going to really help for shopping. Are you, are you with me on that? Uh, he could transport himself by a thought. Think Hawaii, and you're there. Come, Lord Jesus, you know? In other words, you will have a spiritual, physical, powerful, glorified, incorruptible body. Looking forward to that? Yeah, those of you who got up this morning and the first thing came out of your mouth was, ugh. That will not happen. That will not happen. Some of you are not convinced, though, that there will be a rapture. So turn to our third passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Now, this is the strongest passage on the rapture, and the Thessalonians were an incredible group of people. Uh, they were a young church, and in chapter 1, verse 10, it indicates they were looking for the rapture. They were rightly anticipating the rapture. Every day they'd get up and say, maybe today, Lord, maybe today. And Paul praises them for that. Listen, Christian, that's the attitude to have. Maybe today. You know, right before that gigantic math test, maybe today. Awesome. But the Thessies also had a great concern. They were concerned. They were expecting the return of Christ at any moment, yes. But some of their Christian family, as some of you have had this happen, some of their Christian friends, as some of you have had this happen, had died. People that they were very close to, that they loved, they were beloved, they died. And the rapture had not yet occurred. Jesus has not yet come to take them home. And these loving saints in Thessalonica were concerned that those who died would miss out on the benefits of the rapture. They're going to miss it. This is an incredible event we're all looking forward to, and they're going to miss it. So Paul comforts them with these words in chapter 4, verse 13. Take a look at it. But we do not want you to be, what, uninformed, don't be ignorant, brethren, about those who are asleep. Now, asleep doesn't mean soul sleep. Like somehow when you die, then you're just kind of in this limbo of nothingness, okay? That's not what he's talking about. Uh, it, the sleep there is a word that Paul used when a Christian dies. He's trying to help you to understand the, the comfort that we have in that, and they call it sleep. And we know that to be absent from the body is to be what? Home and present with the Lord, but the body will sleep until the rapture. Your, your immaterial uh, 
part of you, the, the part that uh, is, it makes you you, goes into God's presence, but your body does sleep during that season. Verse 13, though, continues with this. Look at it at the latter part. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. You're not to be like non-Christians. I mean, they don't have any hope when someone dies. They keep making up stories about what, you know, the better life that they're going to have. They have no hope in death. But you have a great hope in Christ. So what do you mean, Paul? Well, look at verse 14. He says this. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and do we believe that? Yes. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Uh, Paul states a plain fact. The resurrection of Christ guarantees your future resurrection. The bodily resurrection of Christ guarantees your future bodily resurrection. Christians who have died will be reunited with a glorified body. And then, that's what he guarantees there in verse 14, uh, they'll be with the Lord forever. Okay, they've died and now they'll be reunited with a glorified body. And then they're going to be with the Lord forever. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who've fallen asleep. The Thessies are all worried about those who've died, okay? They're, they're going to miss the rapture, and they're all worried about that. Paul says, no, no, don't be worried about that. You're wrong about that. They will go first. They'll go first before any of us who remain alive at the time of the rapture. The dead in Christ go first at the rapture. Verse 16 Look what it says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. I like this. Can you picture it? You and I are not waiting for an event. We're waiting for a person. We're waiting for a person. You got to be ready to face Jesus Christ every day, face to face. Every day. That's your hope. That's your excitement. That's what changes our lives when we know we're going to stand before Jesus Christ. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Verse 16, and with the voice of the archangel. Jesus will call and we'll know his voice. And then the commander-in-chief of angels, Michael the archangel, the angel general, the ultimate Rambo, John Wayne, SEAL Team 6 angel. He's going to shout as well. And it's going to be an angelic battle cry, beautiful and awful. Now why? Well, there's two reasons. The rapture begins the final war with the forces of evil. And the holy angels will completely, at the end of it, wipe out the demonic forces, all their rebellious brethren. Added to the shouts is, again, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The trumpet's used to summon people to war, so there's the beginning of the tribulation war, but it's also used to summon worship. And so here we are being summoned in worship. Here believers are called home in glorified bodies to worship their king, and Paul identifies those in Christ. You see it says those in Christ, the dead in Christ, meaning Christians, church aid saints, not the Old Testament. No, Old Testament saints are resurrected after the tribulation. This is for the church. The rapture is for the bride of Christ, the church. It says, verse 17, you want to circle that one. Look at verse 17, very key. Then we who are what? Alive. That's you right now. So if the rapture happens right now, we get to go. Anybody excited about that? We who are alive and remain will be caught up. That's harpazo. That's the word. Caught up together with them in the clouds 
Okay, so we're going to meet everybody who was dead in Christ, and now we're going to be in Christ, now just alive and made new, and meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be, what? With the Lord. Again, it's about not an event, but a person. We get to be with Christ. And Paul teaches the Thessalonians not to be sad. Those dead believers that you're worrying about will not be left out. In fact, they go first. And then just as I previously taught you, we who are still alive will be snatched, will be seized, will be caught up, harpazo, together. Not on the earth. Did you notice that? Look at the technical details here. Not on the earth, but in the clouds. We're meeting the Lord in the clouds. Not on the Mount of Olives, like in the second coming, but in the air. Therefore, we will always be with him. Always. And Paul concludes with two exhortations. Look at verse 18. Comfort one another with these words. And then chapter, uh, the second exhortation or comfort, exhortation, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Remember, you and I, I don't know when the rapture is going to occur, but verse 2, it will be like a thief in the night. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be unexpected. So we always need to be ready. So he goes on, look at verse 6 of chapter 5. Don't sleep. Don't sleep. Stay awake. Don't, don't, don't kind of fall into a lull. Don't get really super comfortable here. Verse 8, be sober. Don't get dull, okay? In verse 9, be comforted because God has not destined them for his wrath, the tribulation. Yes, there is a rapture. So why the confusion? Well, one of the big reasons is we don't know and understand the culture of the first century and the unique wedding custom of a typical Jew. When you understand the wedding of a typical Jew and you look at it in terms of understanding the rapture, you will see some great coordination some great sense of harmony. Once you see it, the rapture becomes clear. So listen as I describe uh, this Jewish ceremony uh, and listen in light of the rapture and have the rapture in view. The betrothal engagement happened when a Jewish groom left his father's house and visited the father of his desired bride. And he would ask for her hand in marriage. And if agreed to, the father would state his price for a dowry. Now, once the price was paid for her, then they were in a covenant in marriage, as we are with Christ. For a year, the young man would prepare his home and accommodation for his wife-to-be. So for a year, he'd be preparing. And then on an unannounced night, not anybody knows, the groom, his best man, and male escort would gather at the father's house and begin a procession to the bride's house who would quickly prepare herself, others would join the procession, and all would shout, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Then the procession would not enter her home. Are you getting the correlation here? As she would actually, with her bridesmaid, meet her groom and the gang in the streets, kind of like a rapture there, and then they would return to the groom's house where the party would begin. And the family and friends would all be gathered. The groom and the bride would consummate their marriage. Now, this is weird for us. Okay, I'm just uh, making reference to that. The groom would come out to the party and announce that the marriage was consummated. <laughs> That's a little weird. Okay. It's kind of like the marriage supper of the lamb. Then the husband and wife, they would remain in seclusion for a week. Seven days. Hmm. Like the tribulation, they would call these days the days of hiding, the days of the bridal chamber. 
On the seventh day, the groom and the bride would leave the bridal chamber and join the feast. She would be unveiled for everyone to see. You see the correlations of that? That's how they understood. And when they're listening to this teaching on the rapture and the second coming, they get it. It's us who has a problem with it because we don't understand that culture anymore. I'm certain you see the parallels. And one of them being, number two in your outline, the rapture is first. The rapture is first. The rapture is the beginning event for the day of the Lord. The end times, eschatology. The rapture is next for Christians. Now, I believe the rapture is first, meaning I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Write that down and press your friends. Pre-tribulational rapture. Pre-trib, we call it, before the seven-year tribulation that we're raptured. There are some who believe in mid-trib. Okay, three and a half years into the tribulation that they're raptured in the middle of the tribulation. There are some who are pre-wrath, which is close to the end of the tribulation. We'll find a final outpouring of wrath. Right before that final outpouring, somehow there's a rapture in the seven-year tribulation. And there are a few that are post-trib at the end of the seven-year tribulation. The most prevalent views are pre-trib and pre-wrath. Why should we believe that the rapture is first, though, pre-trib, according to what the Bible has to say before the tribulation. Well, let me give you a few reasons why the rapture is the next event in eschatological history and it can happen at any nanosecond right now. Wouldn't that be awesome? I was just, right now! <clears throat> well, first, the rapture is uniquely different than the second coming. It's uniquely different. Let me give you, uh, in shotgun approach, ten differences. Ready? One, the rapture is a mystery. The second coming is revealed in the Old Testament. Two, the rapture can, can occur at any second, but many events, like in the tribulation, must occur before the second coming. Three, at the rapture, the church goes to heaven. At the second coming, the church comes back to earth. Four, the rapture is a time of comfort for believers. The second coming is a time of terror for unbelievers. Five, the rapture will meet Christ in the air, and at the second coming, Christ will come back to the earth. Six, the rapture is private. Only believers will see Christ. Second coming, every eye will see him. The rapture, seven, believers go out of the world. Second coming, unbelievers are taken off the earth, and believers remain. Eight, at the rapture, evil begins to increase. At the second coming, evil is suppressed. Nine, the rapture is the removal of the restrainer. The second coming is the removal of Satan for a thousand years. Ten, the rapture is uh, where the, the judgment seat of Christ then occurs right after that. And second coming, the judgment is of the sheep and the goats, two different judgments. So the rapture and the second coming are distinct. They are different. So they cannot occur at the same time. Secondly, the purpose of the tribulation is punishment. Punishment, tribulation, which again, once the rapture occurs, then you have the tribulation. Isaiah 24 and Jeremiah 30 state that tribulation is designed to punish the Gentile nations and the tribulation is designed to bring Israel into a frame of mind for submitting to Christ as her Messiah, according to Daniel 12 and Revelation 6 through 18. Now understand, when you think about punishment, you're thinking about punishment not because they've been bad, but because they have been defiantly, rebelliously sinful. Humanity is rebelliously and defiantly sinful. We, believers, are sinful. We have only been rescued by Christ, correct? 
And so therefore, because of sin, God is going to judge this planet. But believers in the church have already been punished. All the punishment for your sins fell on Christ on the cross. Can I hear him amen to that? Therefore, you're not going to be punished. But the tribulation is designed for punishment. Scripture teaches in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, that Christ will keep the church, keep us out of the punishment of the tribulation. So is the rapture before the tribulation? Yes, I believe it is. And that is thirdly, the church is never told to prepare for the tribulation. In fact, it's just the opposite. The Bible teaches us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, informs us that Jesus will keep us out of the wrath to come. Now, it is an argument for silence, but it is a powerful one. In fact, add to the fact that the church is never mentioned in the tribulation narrative in the book of Revelation. It is never mentioned. It points strongly that we're not present. In chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, the church is mentioned about 30 times in chapters 2 and 3. In chapters 4 through 18, it is not mentioned at all except to be in heaven. The church is not mentioned at all except to be in heaven. Now, fourthly, in your outline, the rapture is imminent in New Testament teaching. There are no events that have to happen for the rapture to occur. The rapture is at hand, it's eagerly awaited, and a hope for Christians. The rapture must happen before the detailed tribulation. Number five, a pre-trib rapture is the best explanation for the restrainer. You say, what is that? We'll get to that uh, in coming weeks. But 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 says this, read this that passage with me uh, silently if you would, and you know what restrains him now. He's speaking about the Antichrist here and other eschatological events, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end, and by the appearance of his coming. You go, what is he talking about? There are a lot of views about the restrainer, but the two best ones are, one, the Holy Spirit, and two, God's people, the church. Well, because the Holy Spirit's highly active during the tribulation, they're saving so many people that they say it's the sand of the seashore. You think, nobody's going to come to Christ, you know, after the rapture. No, no, no. It's millions and millions of people will come to Christ. They know that God is punishing this planet. They realize that. There are Bibles still laying around. There was your witness and testimony for some, and they're going to respond in some way. But saving millions, the Holy Spirit's active during the tribulation, so the restrainer, which is taken out of the way, probably the best view is that it's the church, the Spirit of God through the people of God that restrain evil. Are we not to be salt and light to this world? Yes? Sure. But once we're taken out of the way, that evil is going to run rampant. Evil is going to go crazy during the tribulation. Well, sixthly then, the scripture declares that only believers enter the millennium. Now, you've got to really make your oatmeal work, okay? So stay with me. Your breakfast has got to count today because only regular earthly believers like you and me right now, as well as glorified saints, people who are raptured and have their glorified body, will start the thousand-year kingdom. There are going to be people who are believers who survive the tribulation. 
And they're going to go into the millennium as believers, just normal every day, just like you. They're still going to sin. They're still going to struggle. They're going to love the Lord. They're going to be Christians, but they're going to start the tribulation. And they're going to have kids, and they're going to have kids, and they're going to have kids, and they're going to have kids for a thousand years. Are you with me on that? Along with a glorified Christ reigning on planet Earth, as well as glorified saints who have been raptured and now returned with him. We're going to be ruling. Some of you will be ruling in Hawaii. Some of you will be ruling in Hemet. I know who's going to be ruling in Hemet. And all that's going to occur, well, if the rapture is at the end of the tribulation, then that takes all the believers out. So the post-trib view, and even a little of the pre-rath view, then there'd be no regular earthly Christians to enter the millennium. Only glorified saints. Are you getting it? It won't work. The kingdom begins with all believers and glorified saints who rule under the rule of Christ. After a thousand years, at the end of the kingdom, some of those offspring of regular earthly Christians will rebel against Christ. But if there's no regular Christians who begin the kingdom, that they can't have that offspring and that rebellion can't happen. Therefore, the rapture must be before the end of the tribulation. Are you getting that? It must be before that end. It seems clear that the rapture is going to happen first. In eschatological planning, you want to say, look it, I'm ready for the rapture. I want to be every day ready for the rapture. Are you ready for the rapture? Now, I am clearly, strongly a pre-tribulational guy. I think that that fits the immediacy, the expectancy, and all the points of Scripture. But understand that textually, it's not the strongest argument in the world. I want to admit that. Okay, I am strongly that way. But if I find myself in the tribulation, and all of a sudden the Antichrist is making him, setting himself up at God in three and a half years, then I'm going to be definitely mid-trip, okay? <laughs> definitely. And if somehow I survive the wrath of God, and it's really outpouring, and people are shaking their fists, and, and all those oceans turn to blood, man, I am pre-wrath all the way, baby. And if somehow I'm thinking it's going to be seven years, I'm going to be post. The rapture's happening, friends. It's happening. The timing of it can be a little bit controversial, and I am strongly pre-trib. But I understand that it's difficult to make a strong case with the timing except for the immediacy of God's expectation of his return. The immediacy is what is the strongest argument, that it's going to happen at any moment, that you need to be ready at any moment. Are you ready? That's the big question. Not the timing, but are you ready? Are you ready? Well, understand, next week you'll discover why I would prefer not to go through the tribulation. That anybody who says, oh, wouldn't it be cool? I look at them and shake my head and go, you don't know your Bible. <laughs> so you need to be here next week to figure that out. But why the big deal? What's the difference? What's so important about the rapture? Number three in your outline, the rapture is final. It's final. Letter A, once the rapture occurs, God's commission to the church is over. God's commission to the church, your window to impact this planet for Jesus Christ and to accomplish the great commission is done the moment the rapture occurs. It's done. What Jesus has called us to during this age is to make disciples. To be discipled and to make disciples. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. To pursue intentional relationships for the purpose of growth in Christ. And actually the gospel as well. Don't lull yourself into thinking that you're in God's will when nothing in your life reflects his will for this planet. 
don't lull yourself to thinking you're in God's will, but nothing in your life reflects his will for this planet. You say, what's his will for this planet? To bring himself glory, to reflect his character, to exalt him and put him on display. And are you ready? Along with that, to make disciples. We're commanded. It's the big command. You say, I could never do that. I could never make disciples. Wait a minute. How many of you here are following Christ? Can I see your hands? That's what a disciple is. It's someone who follows Christ. Just help somebody else follow Christ. And you're discipling them. Are you with me? That's the process that God has called us to. Letter B, if the rapture can happen any nanosecond, then don't live as though it's never going to happen. It really should impact your purchases. They should be guided by the temporary nature of this world. I know it's shiny. I know it's nice. I know it's trendy. Do you really need it? Do you really need it? Does your giving reflect joy and a potential sudden removal? How about how you spend your time? Are you involved in faithful service, the things that will last for eternity? Christ through you. Do you consider who you spend time with? Are you, are you trying to spend time with those who don't know Christ so that they might hear and see the gospel through your life? How about those friends? Are they, are they building you up spiritually? Are you hanging around with people who are tearing you down spiritually? The rapture actually may motivate you to adjust your crew, and it might, should be. Drinking up undistracted devotion to Christ as a single while you prepare now to be a godly husband or a godly wife. And since there's no marriage in heaven, maybe some of you young men need to, maybe you need to ask somebody out sooner rather than later. Uh, it's now or never, boys. I mean, the rapture's pretty practical, right? Letter C, the main purpose of the knowledge of the future is godliness. Why are we learning this? So that we would be holy. Our Lord tells us about the sudden unexpected future so that we will live godly, holy lives. Now look what two verses say that very clearly. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Beloved, since you look for these things, again, he's talking about the eschatological events, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Character and reputation. 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. If you're born again, you will want to live holy and pure. If you know Christ will snatch you at any moment, you want to be ready for that moment. If one second you're here and the next nanosecond you're face to face with Christ, you don't want to be doing anything unholy and pure and sinful, right? What current habit, what current behavior, what sinful struggle must be dealt with so you're not embarrassed by the rapture? Letter D, be comforted by the truth of the rapture. Be comforted. Jesus reminds believers in John 14, do not let your heart be what? Troubled. Paul compassionately encouraged the Thessalonians in 1 Thess 4, comfort one another with these words. You're going to see your born-again family again. You're going to see your born-again friends again. Are you looking forward to that? Those who've died in Christ, who really were in Christ, you will see them again. They, they will be more alive than they have ever been. They've not departed, friends. They've arrived. And the promise of Scripture in 2 Corinthians 5.8 is we are of good courage. Why? I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body to be at home with the Lord. Letter E, 
Don't be foolish in your thinking about the rapture. I've had some unbelievers tell me and affirm this truth. They go, yeah, I believe in the rapture, but I'm not going to give my life to Christ. And they conclude, well, if I get left behind, I'll, I'll just turn to Christ at that time. Have you heard that? I've heard that. Uh, they go, I'll repent, and then, and then I'll follow Christ as master when I know this is all true. <laughs> I'll become a Christian in the tribulation. Ah, neat. You know, if you're tempted to think that, you need to be warned. And the warning is actually not my warning, it's the warning of Scripture. It's God's Word. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Take a look at it. If you think after hearing the truth now that you'll have a second chance later, think again. After describing those in verse 10 who did not receive the truth of the gospel, and he says that, they didn't receive the truth of the gospel, verse 10, he shares in verse 11 these words, For this reason God will send upon them a, what? A deluding influence, so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Those who reject the truth, basically they're doing so so they can live the way they want. They can sin. They can just live apart from God. And they will be, if they reject the truth now, deluded by God as a result and will live and believe the lies of Satan through the Antichrist. Why? Because they've lived in wickedness. And this is a just punishment for choosing to follow wickedness and sin rather than Christ. God's in charge. He's accomplishing His will on earth. And the only way to be right with him now, raptured by him soon, and ready for heaven with him forever, is to turn from your sin and repentance, and to put your entire life in the hands of Jesus Christ by faith. Your sin falls on Christ, his righteousness covers you. Ask the Lord, would you, to open your heart so you can turn to Christ. We can't do this in our own strength. We cry out to him, and he has to do it. He has to accomplish it. We are dead in our sins. We are lost in our sins. God has to open our hearts. But if somehow he's working in your heart right now, then cry out. Say, open up my heart. Give me a new heart so that I might respond in repentance and faith. Would you catch this? Ask the Lord to open your heart so you can turn to Christ. Because life with Christ, write this down, is an endless hope. Life with Christ is an endless hope. Life without Christ is a hopeless end. Life without Christ is a hopeless end. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we have gathered today to exalt you. It has been our desire to worship you. And Father, the only way we can is because you have saved us and made us your children. And Father, we have the ability through your spirit to have you live through us and work through us and glorify yourself through us. And so that has been our desire and that we would not be in the way, that we would be a good vessel, a vessel that, where you can work through and display your glory. Father, anything that is good in our lives has come from you. Every perfect gift is from above. And so we want to be a people who honor you and live in a way that we would be in your presence in just a moment, in a second. And Father, we pray also that we would not only live to honor you, but we would 
live in a way where our service would last for eternity, that our reward would be strong for eternity, that our giving would reflect that we are giving eternally. Father, that we, our speech and our actions and our words of sacrifice, as we love one another, we are seeking to glorify you, to put you on display so people see you and not us. And as a church, we want to put all of your character on display with all the variety of giftedness. And then we want to esteem each other in that way as, as the church and look forward to being with you together. And Lord, it is not just the rapture that we're looking forward to. We're looking forward to being with you face to face. We'd ask our God, too, that you would work in the hearts of those who don't know you, that you would begin to draw them, help them to see if they've deluded themselves or they've lied to themselves. There are many who have lied to themselves. They, they prayed a prayer when they were young or they, they, they you know, made some sort of Christian experience happen. And, but, Father, they're, they're not following you. They're not loving you. They don't, they don't have a heart that wants to obey. And Father, help them to see that and help them to cry out to you for saving faith, for a salvation that not only covers them in righteousness, but transforms them internally so that they're regenerated with a new heart that wants to serve you now. Father, we have everything to hope for, everything to hope in, and we're excited about what's before us, and that truly that you'll preserve us through the wrath to come. We love you, and we thank you, and we praise you, Pray that we might be different people as a result, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.